Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans. My name's Joel Gerling. I'm Kim McKenzie. And today on Top 8, we're counting down the most dramatic moments from the last decade at Roland Garros. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. everybody welcome back welcome to another episode of the passing shot of course this weekend would have been uh, finals weekend at Roland Garros which Kim I think actually makes me a little bit sad kind of looking outside I wish I could just kind of switch on the tv and watch some watch some French open French open finals being taken place of course the men's final would have been today women's final yesterday I mean would you would you expected Rafa there I mean what are you thinking I would have hoped so. I would have hoped that I would have been getting maybe the champagne ready for uh, to crack open after he'd won his 13th title. But I mean, alas, it's not to be, Joel. And <laughs> in another world and another reality, who knows? I mean, I don't know. I, based on the history books, you would have to say that he would have been there. But I'm not sure whether, you know, Dominic team would have made it three in a row or would we have seen another Rafa Djokovic classic or... I mean, I don't know. I think without having had any clay season, you just cannot predict. It's completely strange. And if we get a French Open later in the year, then that's even more strange. I know. And I, again, it's the same for the women. I was wondering, I've, I was just kind of wondering yesterday who would have been in the ladies final. I feel like I would have, I want to say Simona Hallett would have been there. Mm. I would have loved to say Joe Conta would have been <gasps> there, but yes, but who knows? But oh uh, yeah. That would have been fantastic final. Conta had yeah. it. But then I would want them both to win. Like, that would have been really... I mean, I would have gone for Conta, obviously. But, uh, yeah. I mean, wow. That 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 would have been cool. <laughs> but we're going to be discussing some, you know, moments from the last decade that have entertained us. And uh, we'll get stuck into those in a second. But, I mean, these are just our, our opinions. I think a lot of people would beg to differ. And we should just say that they are purely from the last 10 years, uh, well, just over the last 10 years, because we, um, although many exciting moments have happened in the 80s and the 90s, you know, we weren't really around then. So we uh, don't feel it's perhaps the best. uh, We're not the best ones to comment on those matches, are we? No. And, and so, yeah, we've got a little we've got a little countdown for for our listeners. It is our, our top eight. There are some honourable mentions as well. And I think, you know, if you do look back over the last decade, there have been quite a few dramatic, dramatic moments, both, you know, on the men's side and, and, and the women's side. You know, I think there's going to be a lot that kind of spring to people's minds. And you know, as you know, listeners, when you kind of hear our list, I'd be interested to know, do you agree with it? Do you think we've missed any any uh, moments off? I think it's it's definitely subjective. And I feel like I'm I'm hoping it's a little bit controversial. But 
yeah, let's let's begin. Number eight on our countdown, most dramatic moments over the last decade at Roland Garros. Kim, what have we got? Well, I put this one in there because I this is one of the matches that has remained in my memory. And it was from last year. So, OK, fair play, a bit of recency bias going on. But for me, the, the Dominic team versus Novak Djokovic semi-final, um, the rain delays, the... Uh, the drama that surrounded Djokovic's apparent decision just to walk off court and refuse to keep playing on the Friday. Um, and just all of the kind of, I don't know, intrigue and scandal that seemed to accompany this match has just made me remember it. Um, I was so on the Friday night when they, you know, cancelled play for the day. I just remember being like so... Um, I don't know, intrigued about what was going to happen when they started playing the next day, because I don't know if you remember, but it was a settle and team had just broken Djokovic. He was 3-1 up in the third set. And then the sort of heavens started to open and um, it looked like Djokovic kind of just decided to go off court without even consulting yeah. anyone. And that yeah. caused a lot of consternation amongst tennis fans on, you know, on Twitter and, and everything. <laughs> It did feel like he literally packed up his bags and got off court as quick as possible. And it was kind of awkward, wasn't it? Because the weather turned out to be okay. There was like blue skies and no rain. And they, you know, it felt like they could have got that match done in in one day as opposed to it going over over two days. But I think it was almost kind of the drawn outness of it over two days added to that you know, what made it so dramatic. And it was really kind of um, delicately poised at that moment where, you know, it, it could it, it could have been for Djokovic, it could have been for team. And I know Novak Djokovic kind of came in for a bit of stick because it just looked like he, you know, he had decided himself, right, I'm not, I'm not playing for the rest of the day and just essentially walked off. Yeah, because I think there was also footage of him um, like going straight out to his car or something and leaving the site before the organisers had officially announced that play was cancelled for the day. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know if that is actually true because there was a lot of rumours going around. So I don't want to say that that, you know, was the actual situation, but it just, you know, looked a certain way. So I just remember the amount of like drama going on around it. Um, and also, yeah, like you said, the weather was actually came out really nice after the kind of that that rain shower and they would have had a window of time in which they could have finished it. And obviously that might have changed the complete dynamic of the match. Um, you know, when they did stop, obviously team had kind of got the momentum going, was a break up in the third set. So, yes, it was convenient that Djokovic had that opportunity to stop at that point. Um but I was really intrigued to see what would happen, yeah, on the Saturday when they came back. And I was very pleased that Dominic team managed to actually cross the finish line in the end. I mean, it went 7-5 in the fifth. It was a really tentative battle. And, and actually, quite um, interestingly, that was team's first five-set match at, at Roland Garros, which, you know, I mean, he did remarkably well to uh, to come through it. I think it for me it solidified his claim as almost kind of being the the next kind of Rafael Nadal or the kind of the new generation's Rafael Nadal on the clay court because it showed it showed that he did have the weapons I think to really kind of do some damage to the big three and I think what was interesting from you know historical kind of context was Novak Djokovic he was looking at holding all four Grand Slam titles and I think you know earlier on in the season you know, he had come out very publicly and kind of had stated that was one of his goals and. 
you know for team to kind of come out and you know not be phased by you know the the you know the man across him and and kind of yeah kind of win that over five sets particularly i think in that fifth set because he was what i think he was five three up and Djokovic got it back to five all and you did kind of wonder you know did did team miss his moment but i think it was just so dramatic because you know it, this hadn't been done you know this hadn't been done before and I, you know i think novak Djokovic, if you look at the grand slams like you know if you look at all four grand slams you probably would say roland garros is the one where he's probably had his most heartbreaking defeats yeah, I think I think I would have to say so. I mean, he's only won that title once compared to his multiple victories at the other one. So, um, I mean, you have to you have to say that, especially you know, team's got the better of him twice now at Roland Garros. And I just remember watching this. I was it was one of those matches where you know you sort of get up off your seat and you're cheering along, and you know those matches will always remain in my memory um, for that. And yeah, he was going for such a, I guess you know, historic occasion like four in a row again. So. I guess a lot more was on the line and we have seen this at times. Novak does, I think, mentally show his his edginess and gets frustrated. And we have, you know, we'll be discussing another match later on where you could see that um, coming from Novak in, in another semi-final at, at the French Open. I do wonder if this is one of those matches that I was, I, I wonder if I put it in that category of, I, you know, you know, like men's semi-finals matches over two days. It's like you, you love to see them because of the drama that inevitably comes with it. But at the same time, I'm almost a bit like, I also don't want to see it because it, it inevitably might ruin the, the the final because, you know, team, you know, team would have had to have played, you know, th- across, uh, you know, three days kind of consecutively. And I do put it in that category of, uh, you know, a lot of play, you know, a lot of fans might think about, you know, whether the Grand Slams, uh, you know, in men's tennis should not be best of five and be best of three and wonder if, you know, you know, whether this match could be an argument for that. I'm not saying for me it is. Um, I think it's more of an argument of Roland Garros, you need a you need a roof on your court so uh, you can get these matches done in one day. Yeah, which they have now. Uh, so we won't see this happening again. But I mean, <laughs> if you look at the wider context, though, this was also um, the year where they decided to ticket the men's semi-final separately. So the issue was obviously they had on that Friday both men's semis and both women's semis to play, I think. Um, so they obviously pushed the women's semis to other courts and they dedicated the men's semis to Chatrier meaning they couldn't play them at the same time. They had to play them one after the other. And, you know, obviously the bad weather came and they couldn't finish it. I mean, they could have done, um, I guess, because, you know, with hindsight, we know there was a window after that. But, you know, they cocked their ticketing policy up. I mean, you know, there's a lot of cries of, you know, this is a very sexist ticketing policy because they were only ticketing the men's semis and not the women. So there's a whole kind of other debacle around this which I just thought added you know to the controversy of the 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 kind of these couple of days last year where the weather was just awful I mean I don't know if you remember the the Federer and Adal semi the wind that they played in that was a abysmal abysmal weather I think Djokovic uh they described Djokovic described it as some of the worst conditions he's ever been a part of literally kind of like hurricane hurricane conditions and you know it's just not the way you almost envisage you know watching Roland Garros is it you expect kind of blue Parisian skies you know it being a bit hot and humid and you know the ball kind of bouncing up off the the court but yeah the weather was just absolutely bleak and uh yeah I'm, I'm almost glad that they've got a 
they've got a roof now so that hopefully we don't have any of these kind of situations you know particularly at kind of the latter end of the event um you know unfold in the future there is nothing like a booing French crowd, though, is there? When there's you know an unpopular <laughs> player or decision, and I, I, I will maybe miss that if if we don't get so much drama because of a roof. So, but anyway, um, that was our eighth moment. Uh, Joel, what have you got at number seven on our countdown? Yes, uh, number seven. I have got. I think for me, one of the best ladies Grand Slam finals um, in the last decade. Period. Not just at Roland Garros. And the match I'm talking about is the one between Maria Sharapova and Simona Halep in 2014. They had an absolute war of attrition um, on a tennis court. It went over three hours. It was a very hot, humid day. And it was just a fascinating, a fascinating watch. It wasn't, um, you know, it was a very gritty, you know, a lot of people describe it as a very gritty match. And, you know, I think that's the sort of tennis, not necessarily you'd, you'd associate with Maria Sharapova with, but she came through it and she, I think, showed in that tournament the that sort of grittiness to her game. I think she had won, uh, you know, her last you know, three matches to get to the final in three sets. And, you know, this final was just kind of like the the icing on the cake against um, Halep, who was, uh, you know, it was in her first time final. Um, so, yeah, I just thought this is a, a really great, it was just a really great match to, to watch. And I think if you look at kind of the ladies' finals, there have been quite a few that haven't been that uh that great that good and you know i was surprised to learn this was the first final since 2001 uh to go three sets and you know as i said it went into three hours and the, the crowd were you know treated to an absolute an absolute feast yeah absolutely i mean i didn't realize there had actually been so many you know straight set finals um that's a massive like amount of time like 13 years with I guess pretty straightforward <laughs> affairs on you know the second Saturday so I'm sure the crowd were delighted but um yeah I remember this match and actually it's it's interesting isn't it that Sharapova managed to win two French Opens because you know arguably play is her worst surface so it's kind of ironic in that respect yeah and there was a fantastic quote uh from Sharapova on this because she said if you had told her that Roland Garros was the Grand Slam, she was going to win twice out of all of them, she would have probably have told you you're drunk, which I thought was really <laughs> funny. But yeah, it, it was, it, you know, it is known as her weakest surface and it just that just makes it more, I guess, more amazing. And, you know, I don't really know how, um, you know, it, it's just very, yeah, I feel it's just very surprising, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> Like we, she's obviously she was very emotional because you know she has a lot she's had a lot of shoulder problems you know at that point and obviously throughout her whole career so I think she just was amazed at what she'd actually managed to do and I mean I should just say obviously at this time she she was taking you know a substance which was later banned um, so I don't know how much impact that that would have had um, on her ability to go you know to three sets in. I think it was, yeah, her fourth match in a row, that tournament that she'd managed to win in three. So, you know, there is a bit of a question mark over all her, I guess, all her slam wins. But if you just look at this match, you know, without thinking about any of that, then, yeah, it was a superb match. And I mean, also for Halep, you know, her first slam final, surprisingly, it took her, you know, pretty much three years to, well, yeah, three years to get to her second, which is a very long time, I think, to wait between between slam finals, you know, and I don't know, I think 
well. I, I mean, looking back, I didn't realise that it was actually that kind of time frame for her. And obviously it's fine now. She's won two slams, but she could have been a slam winner much earlier on. Yeah, I mean, she was 22 at the time. So it was a classic. I think it was one of those battles where it was like, you know, the new generation versus, you know, a, a one of one of the, you know, one of the most one of the best kind of players of their generation in, in Maria Sharapova. And, um, you know, it was that classic matchup that just kind of gave us a, an absolute, you know, a treat on the, on the tennis court. And as I said, for me, it's one of the best uh, women's finals of the last decade period. I don't know if, if any of our listeners agree with that, but um, if you watch the highlights, it was just, uh, it was just fantastic. And I think, you know, if you look back, this was Sharapova, you know, Sharapova's retired now. It was her last Grand Slam title of five. And, you know, to do it after having shoulder surgery, I think that's what that's what made it so impressive for me. You know, at the time, you know, you felt like there was kind of a lot of uncertainty. I think it was like her third, you know, her third surgery on her shoulder or something. So the fact that she was able to come back from that and, um, you know, and, and win a Grand Slam that, you know, that takes some doing. Yeah. And then I guess it was pretty much downhill from there because she was never to win another slam. But uh, yeah, no, it was... Um... It was it was a good match, and I'm sure the French crowd were incredibly delighted that they finally had, you know, a decent match on their hands. And you know, since then, actually, there have been quite a few three setters, I think. So, um, but yeah, and we'll get on to another one of those later, uh, also featuring Simona Halep. Um, but the next one I wanted to um, bring up, Joel, was. Um, one that involves a very special pair of shorts, uh, which we have <laughs> spoken at length about before. And obviously that is Stan the Man winning in 2015 when he beat Novak Djokovic in the final uh, to stop Djokovic gaining all four Grand Slams. Uh, well, you know, stop him gaining his first Roland Garros, which obviously he went on to do a year later. But um, yeah, like this match... For me, you know, I was fully expecting Djokovic to just kind of win. I don't know. Yes, I thought it might be four or five sets, but the fact that Stan actually managed to do it, and I know he'd won the Australian Open like the year before, so we knew he could perform on a big stage and go deep at slams. But I, yeah. I was still, I was still having a lot of question marks. I thought, oh, I think this is Novak's year. You know, um, this was the year that he'd beaten Rafa um, in the quarterfinal. So I thought, oh, surely Novak's just going to walk away with it. But it was not to be. I love the fact that, you know, he was already a Grand Slam champion, but yeah, in the final, he, it did feel like he was like the ultimate underdog and it, it was kind of like Novak's for the taking. And for me, you know, I think this is what makes that moment so dramatic because, you know, at this point, Djokovic hadn't won the French Open. He had beaten Nadal in the quarterfinals in straight sets, no less. Um, and then he beat Andy Murray in the semi-finals across five sets. And I know he didn't he didn't blame fatigue necessarily in in you know after the final, but um, you know you did feel I think because I, I think that Murray match went over two days as well, and I think that you know, must have taken its its toll mm. on him. But you know I think Stan on that day did play some absolutely ex- exceptional tennis. He was very he was very aggressive. You know he said in he said plain and simply he played the match of his life and, you know, we've never really, you know, we rarely see, you know, Djokovic on a court kind of lost for, you know, words about what kind of what to do, but, you know, 
Stan just kind of didn't give him an inch, and you know his back his backhand was you know on song was on song that day, and I think um, you know it, it, yeah he just kind of played with an aggression that that Djok- even Novak Djokovic couldn't live with. Yeah, and actually, I think Stan well he beat Federer in that tournament as well, um, and. Like, there's a stat here, right? Stan was the first player to defeat the number one and number two seeds en route to winning the French Open since, like, 1993. And I was thinking, hang on, but he didn't beat Rafa in that tournament. So who, where was Rafa seeded if he wasn't, you know, number one or two? But he was actually, I think, seeded sixth. So that was kind of when he was in his lull. He'd gone down the rankings a bit. I think he was struggling with injury. You know, things weren't going well, and hence the straight sets lost to, to Djokovic. But yeah, I think... For me, I just thought, oh, surely this is Novak's time. You know, he's been waiting all these years to finally beat Rafa at Roland Garros and get his chance. And then along comes Stan to kind of delay it by another year. You just think that if you if you beat Naf- if you beat Nadal at the French Open, you feel like you should by should default win, <laughs> win it. Um, and you know he's gonna. You, you'd feel really frustrated not you know completing the job. You know, arguably maybe you're even frustrated. You you re, you you had to face Nadal in a quarterfinal, no less. Um, you know, I think for British fans as well, they'll be frustrated as well because you know Andy Murray um, played Djokovic in that semi final. Yeah, he was two sets down. He got it back to two sets all but ran out of steam in, in the fifth set, losing it 6-1. It was almost a bit of a role reverse, actually, of the 2020, sorry, 2012 uh, men's final. But um, yeah, it, it felt like Djokovic, you know, it, there were going to be no sort of barriers that were going to be insurmountable. He'd come through Nadal, he had come through uh, Murray, and it felt like he was just going to run through Vavrinka, but yeah it, it didn't happen <laughs> and I don't think Stan like coming into the tournament I don't think he had sort of been in, in amazing form like I think you know he was um going through like a divorce or something around that time so it was probably a bit distracted kind of earlier in the year so yeah to come through and I mean I think he did he did thank his his shorts for bringing him all, all the luck and <laughs> obviously they're now uh pride of place in the museum at Roland Garros if anyone wants to go and see them I think there's I th- I think there's a moment in the final after afterwards uh, where he holds up a sign I think or something that says like divorce works because <laughs> I think earlier I think earlier in the season like um, I think it was either Djokovic or Murray had someone had put up a. a um, a statement that said like oh marriage works and like you know having a a calm uh you know presence um in like your love life or personal life helps you kind of having that stability helps you on a tennis court uh, but you know but stan obviously came into the french open yeah i think he you know he had announced um his marriage of, of six years was over um but yeah he didn't let that he didn't let that to distract him and um it, it was just kind of it's just funny to see that kind of uh, you know is he, he was able to kind of almost shut that out from uh, from affecting from affecting his game. Well, I suppose if he didn't want to stay in the marriage, he was probably happy. Maybe I don't I don't know, but I think there was actually a lot of there's actually there's a lot of hoo ha I think about that divorce. So we won't go into that. Um, that's <laughs> for another time, I suppose, another time and place. It's not our position to say. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's go on to our fifth our fifth moment that we've chosen, which was actually going back to last year again. And I guess we're kind of looking at a couple of things from from this. Marquesa von Drusova, uh, to begin with, who, you know, reached the final. Um, she was unseeded. 
and she kind of stormed her way through um obviously famously beating our very own Jay Cotton from the semi-finals much to the dismay of the you know British fans but um yeah von Drusfer, she's the first teenager to reach the French Open final since Ivanovic back in 2007 so that was you know a good 12 years where we we didn't have a a young youthful um you know teenager coming through um and obviously played Ash Barty in the final but yeah, she kind of came out of nowhere. She'd had good results leading up to it. She'd reached the, the quarterfinals or better, I think, the six or seven events previous to, to the French Open. But, you know, that's a big leap to then go into your first slam final. And, and of course, the semi-final was very, you know, Conta had, had her chances and her moments. But for Von Drusfer to keep it all together and to actually make the final. And, you know, she didn't make a complete disaster of the final. So we'll give her some credit for that. But... Yeah, it was kind of came out of nowhere. No one would ever have predicted her to to have reached that final leading up to the tournament. She was just totally not not someone up there. Yeah, and not only to do it like unseeded, but to also not drop a set on route to the final uh, as a teenager is you know kind is kind of crazy if you if you think about it. You'd never kind of think that could happen, you know, like in the, in the men's game, for example. But um, you know, she. Yeah, she was just went on. She just went on one of those runs, and you know we've seen that. I think particularly, I think in kind of in the ladies' tournament over the, over the last decade, you do have players uh, coming out of nowhere to kind of announce themselves, and you know you felt like this was a moment for Von, Von Drusova in terms of you know she got to the final. Yes, she didn't win it, but you felt that this was her like coming out party. She was ready to kind of make that breakthrough. But I think what makes this so this moment kind of so dramatic is the fact that we didn't really hear from her again for the rest of the season because, uh, she, you know, in, unfortunately injuries took her, took, took their toll. I think she, she injured her, um, she injured her wrist around Wimbledon. She went out in the first round to Madison Brengel and, yeah, she, she wasn't able to play for the rest of the season, which I, mean, I imagine was incredibly frustrating for her particularly as you know you would have wanted to kind of you know make the most of this kind of you know this sort of moment but um you know I hope it's I mean I hope it's not a flash in the pan I mean she's obviously still you know incredibly young um but Kim do I mean do you see what do you do you see Rodrusova doing something like this again now that she is a a known quantity I, I can. I mean, she did have a couple of good wins at the start of this season, I think in the pre-AO like warm-up events. And I thought, oh, maybe she's going to make a run at the AO, but she she didn't. Um, yeah, God, I mean, I think if she hadn't have had that injury for the rest of last year, I think I would have had her kind of more at the forefront of my mind. But I think the fact that she sort of disappeared and has done nothing since, like, has made me discount her, you know, much to... You know, that's no no fault of her own. But I don't know if she'd have maybe made a bit more. It was quite disappointing in the final. I felt like she was just way too nervous. And Barty just, you know, controlled everything comfortably and, you know, played with calm and was just, you know, by far the, the most um, complete player out there. But I mean, that final, that final in itself is kind of crazy if you think about it because Ash Barty like three years before that was mm. like playing cricket in Australia <laughs> um so you know that, that you know the French Open I feel like does throw up these um these sorts of it can throw up these sorts of finals because I know I, d- I don't know what it is but it, it, it just does and um 
yeah, I mean, I, I hope we kind of see more of on this sort of Vondrusova on, on a tennis court this this season. I will say, I think almost in a, in a weird way, in injury may have done her good. I think, you know, it's almost kind of taken, as you said, it's almost kind of taken her out of the limelight. So, you know, she's not, she's mm. not um, perhaps she's not going to have the spotlight on her, you know, as much. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's going to be, it'll be very interesting to see how, you know, how, how she develops. Absolutely. Because I don't, I didn't feel that she was sort of one that was naturally kind of geared towards that being in the, in the limelight. So I think actually, when everything kicks up again, uh, restarts, then, you know, she'll be able to play without, you know, the pressure of of having had a, you know, more of a run last year. But we should just mention what Joe Conter did last year while we're on the subject of, of the ladies tournament last year, because, I mean, for me as well, one of the matches of last year, just across the whole season, not just Roland Garros, was Conter's quarterfinal win against Sloane Stephens. Like the way she played, like, especially after the first three games, you know, a bit... Fairly close, but gosh, after those ones, Conta just ran away with it. She was absolutely superb. Like it was the best match I've ever seen her play. And I just thought if she can play like this and keep this up, surely the title, you know, is hers. But obviously she didn't. Um, but I was just that that one match alone, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, the that I do remember that victory. I feel like she loves playing Sloane Stevens. Did she mm, I think she played her at the US her, Open? Yeah, she's beaten her a few times now. Yeah, she loves that sort. I think she loves just playing that sort of opponent. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I guess, you know, I, we always talk about this on the pod, but yeah, it's just frustrating that she wasn't able to get it done against Von Drusva. I mean, credit, as I said, credit to Von, Von Drusva. Um, you know, it, it was it was on, you remember, it was on, um, it had got pushed out to one of the outside courts, didn't it? Because of mm. the, the crazy weather, but um, which was a shame because, you know, this was like a, you know, this was a marquee match for, for two players who, you know, were out to kind of almost kind of make a little bit of history. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, Vodrusov came coming away with it. Right. Let's, let's, let's move on to kind of our top four. Uh, in this list of counting down the most dramatic moments at Roland Garros. And actually, Kim, we're going to talk about now a player who went one step further than Von Drusova and won the tournament in 2017. And I find this unbelievable. This player won the French Open and it was her first title. It wasn't even like her first Grand Slam title. It was just her first title. And... I'm talking about Yelena Ostapenko, Penko Power, um, I believe. Um, she came and won against uh, Simona Halep in a topsy-turvy battle, 4-6, 6-4, I'm sure a lot of Simona Halep fans will remember this match. Uh, I know you do, Kim, because Simona Halep was a set and three love up. Um, and that is, that is not a position you want to you wanna lose a Grand Slam final from. No, I do remember watching this match and I thought, oh, yeah, nicely does it, Simona. You're kind of on your way now, I think, you know. But, oh, I mean, Ostapenko just completely just went out hitting and everything seemed to land in from from a set and three love down. And, you know, she she was so, like, aggressive. And obviously she's got one of those games where it's, like, very hit and miss. And, you know, for the last set and a half or the last two sets, she... um she hit and was not missing. So, I mean, you can see in the stats, like Ostapenko, 54 winners to Halep's eight. I mean, obviously she had a lot of errors up there as well, but that just goes to show you like the different styles in in, in play between the two of them. Um, and also in the third set, actually, 
to give Halep her due, she did lead 3-1 in that as well. So she she was a breakup in the last set as well. And to then, you know, to then go and lose that final, you know, as well as having, you know, previously lost the one against Sharapova, which we just talked about. Um, she must have been thinking, I don't know if my time will ever come. Um, so I'm really pleased she's now, you know, actually got a Roland Garros title. But it's absolutely crazy, though, that Ostapenko won her first title at Roland Garros. And I think since then, she's she certainly won another one, um, at, you know, obviously just a, a WTA level tour. I don't know how many, but certainly one. But I'll have to <laughs> look at the stats on this one. But <laughs> I mean, if you're going to start off, you might as well start high. Yeah, she was. I mean, she was twenty years old as well. So you know, youngest woman to win uh, since Iva Mioli of Croatia in 1997. First Latvian to win, uh, you know, Grand Sam singles title. It was just, it, it was just again, it was just out of the blue, and it was, it was fantastic to see sort of this kind of breath of, breath of fresh air, um, kind of. Mixing and and shaking it up at the very kind of you know the top top level. I think you know a lot of kind of Penko fans, including myself, would say she hasn't really kind of kicked on since then. Um, and I think you know you talk about that sort of all or nothing approach. I think that's potentially the one of the reasons for it is that you know on her day. Yes, her, her aggression can win out, but she's. It feels like she just doesn't have enough, maybe, of those days on tour. Um, and yeah, and and kind of conversely, if you look at kind of Halep, it, it's. I think it's a. I think actually she's kind of learned to kind of deal with aggression a lot better since mm. like since this match. Because uh, you know, I'm already kind of thinking, you know, when she beats Serena Williams in the you know, the Wimbledon final and, you know, all of that kind of sort of power and aggression. And you can kind of see how I think, you know, Halep kind of took this loss and kind of thought, hang on, I'm going to need to develop. I can't just play a defensive game and hope, you know, my player is, is just quality is going to fall. Uh, I think she really kind of made sure that she kind of nuanced her game to ensure that she could kind of combat different, you know, different types of opponents. Absolutely. And, and also I think just, mentally you know becoming stronger and and not letting you know little leads or big leads slip slip away so yeah it's 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 all been a learning curve every every missed opportunity you know you can learn something from um but yeah Ostapenko she does not play percentage tennis and I mean she's gone right down isn't she now like in terms of her ranking and I mean I don't really feel like yes okay she came along and won this but I didn't suddenly think she was going to start dominating tennis. There's a very different feel about this compared to, say, an Andreescu, isn't there? So um, I don't know if we'll see her ever winning another major, to be honest. I mean, that that's up for debate, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out. She's proven that she can, but I think it would have to depend on certain things going her way. Listeners, let us know. Do you think Ostapenko is a one slam, a one slam wonder? Uh, do you think she's got the tools to win another another Grand Slam? Uh, you can obviously contact the show, but um, yeah, I think Ostapenko certainly her win in 2017 is in that category of most dramatic moments at number four. Kim, we're going to get into the top three now, um, and you're going to tell me number three. Because it involves your man, Rafael Nadal. Oh, my man. Um, 
<laughs> you sorry, you well, wish. You wish your uh, man. No, no, no. Although Rafa has just bought a new boat, uh, which is quite exciting. Oh, I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> really nice boat. Really well, yeah, nice. Really boat. nice. But I quite like the old one. It was called Beethoven, which I thought was quite nice. But yeah, majorly <laughs> off topic there. Um yeah, well, this match that I'm gonna talk about. Uh John McEnroe said it might have been the best match ever played on a clay court. Um, so big words. But yeah, it ended nine seven in the fifth, and it was the 2013 Rafa against Novak semi-final, if anyone remembers it at all. Um, yeah, it was like four and a half hours long. Um, Djokovic was world number one, but obviously, you know, Rafa was, well, at that point, he would have been the seven times French Open champion. And well, for me as a Rafa fan, I genuinely was thinking that this would be the match that if Novak won it, it would be the end of Rafa's, you know, era at Roland Garros. I thought, you know, Rafa's playing, you know, really well. And if Novak manages to beat him in a dramatic fashion when Rafa's playing, well, you know, this is it. Like, this is going to be Novak's tournament from now on. <laughs> I mean, maybe that was kind of worst case scenario thinking. But um, yeah, it was it was pretty close. I mean, Rafa served for the match at 6-5 in the fourth set. Um, but Novak kind of came back, sent it to a tie break, which he won. Um, and then Novak was 4-2 up in the fifth set. Uh, but then obviously Rafa kind of broke back and it went on and on and on and on um, until eventually Rafa managed to get over the finish line at 9-7. Um, and there was a point, I don't know if you remember, but I, I remember it quite well. There was a point when um, Novak kind of came in and, and put away um, like a volley or something. And he, he the ball had gone out of out of play, like Rafa, you know, couldn't have got to it. But Novak kind of lost his balance and touched the net kind of almost like had to stop himself from completely falling over it. And so obviously, you know, he he lost the point. Um, but then Novak was arguing that because the ball had already gone out of play, like he touched the net after that moment and that, you know, he, therefore it was his point. Um, so he got, he was getting very uppity. He was arguing with the umpire. You know, he seemed very edgy, I think, because he knew it was such a big occasion, you know, him possibly beating Rafa and then making the final. Um, so I think that didn't help Novak um, when push came to shove. Um, but I remember, I think any, any Rafa fans listening, you know, Rafa saw that Novak had touched the net and he immediately sort of pointed um, at Novak and like had this sort of gleaming stare in his eyes um, saying, you know, <laughs> look, he's, he's, you know, he's committed a foul. In the heat um, of battle. You have to punish him. Yeah, it was very um, dramatic. And I just, yeah, I remember that um, specifically. Uh, so if any Rafa fans are listening, I'm, I'm sure they do as well. Yeah, I think it. I think for me, what I remember is there. I feel like there was still a little of like uncertainty over like Nadal and his knees. I think like around this time and like preceding mm. you know, the months preceding it, it, I feel like there were. I feel like a lot of questions in the media and amongst fans were, you know, Nadal and his knees and what's that going to mean for him on a tennis court, and you know to come back and you know uh, go on to you know he obviously went on to go went on to win um you know in 2013 but the fact that he was able to kind of pull out the bag against Djokovic after sort of those you know injury troubles it just showed you that he you know he was he was back and it, you know it, it took his it, it wasn't not only was he back he was almost kind of back already to his brilliant best and he really needed it that day to uh make sure that he beat Djokovic and I think the other thing I would kind of say about this uh this match is that they played a very similar sort of match in the Australian Open final, like 
uh, I think in the... 2012, yeah, the six-hour-long match, which left them needing chairs at the end for the trophy ceremony. I think Rafa said, you know, he was kind of thinking about that match because obviously, you know, he lost it and he was like, this was his own back for that, um, you know, that Australian Open final hurt where it felt like, again, they had like knocked seven bells out of each other, but, but Djokovic had come away, you know, the victor. And, um, you know, it, it felt like this, there was a kind of a clear cause and, you know, a cause and effect when you look at their rivalry and kind of the relationship between those two, those two matches. Yeah, I mean, it was just such a, it was, it was very high quality tennis. It was very riveting. And I think actually going back to that Australian Open final, I'm sure in the fifth set, Rafa was a breakup. So it was kind of like the reverse of this match, um, you know, with Djokovic being a breakup. Um, I mean, I remember when it was actually happening live, I was at work. So I was sort of, you know, constantly um, looking at the live score app and refreshing it. And I was so nervous. I had to go into like a cupboard to kind of check the scores and when it got to like the final set. Um, And then obviously I I watched it back when I got home, but oh, the drama. I was just so, so relieved um, as a Rafa fan, obviously when he came through, because I did did genuinely think if Novak wins this, like I don't know how many more Rafa would go on to win because yeah, like you said, there, there were question marks and I guess still are question marks about Rafa's knees and, and you know, his fitness and, well, his his injury struggles. Um, but yeah, I think this match, the sheer quality of it definitely deserves to be right up there amongst, you know, the best ever matches, well, played at Roland Garros of all time, I would say. Yes. Uh, so let's move on. Let's move on to number number two in our list. Uh, we've got two moments left and we're going to run through some honourable mentions as well. But uh, number two on our list is perhaps the most shocking defeat in this person's career. It happened in 2012. We're in the ladies tournament here. And it was Serena Williams's loss to Virginie Razano, um in, I think it was in the first round, Razano, world number 111, and Serena Williams loses it 4-6, 7-6, 6-3. I mean, I think, not necessarily the scoreline, it was how she lost it, because she was 5-1 up in that second set tiebreak, and you felt like it was just like going to be a routine victory for Serena, but it, it <laughs> that just did not happen. <laughs> and three hours, three minutes later... Razzano in front of a you know an adoring kind of French crowd uh, sent sent Serena Williams packing and it's one of those it it probably you know like that you know like the you know the um like the Rafa Novak semi final being one of the best Roland Garros uh, matches of all time this feels like one of the biggest shocks um, in tennis in in all time. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's the manner of it. I mean, you know, okay, fair enough if Serena had dropped the tie break and then, you know, you would have expected her just to clean up in the third set. But she then lost the first five games of the third set um, in a row, which is just mad. Like, what a turnaround. And Razano being suddenly, you know, five love up in the third set, she must have been thinking, oh, my God, like, what, what on earth has happened? I bet she couldn't believe it herself. And... I mean, she was she was cramping herself like she, um, you know, it was five love up and then she lost, you know, three games in a row. So you thought, oh, is Serena kind of going to stage, you know, an epic comeback and will Razano be able to get over the finish line? Um, but 
you know, the, the last game alone was, I think, a ridiculous amount of um, juices. It, I think it was over 20 minutes long. And I think it took her like eight match points to finally do it. So, you know, imagine just all the back and forth and, you know, the French crowd, like supporting their home player. I mean, it was it was really exciting. I, I do remember watching it um, at the time. And it reminded me, actually, of um, Serena Williams against uh, Heather Watson at Wimbledon, oh, gosh, which, yes. which uh, you know, Serena obviously came through that uh, by the skin of her teeth. But um, she does love a good scrap with like, <laughs> a player in front of their, their, uh, front, in front of their home crowd <laughs> at a Grand Slam. And, you know, obviously, Razzano, unlike Watson, was able to kind of get the job done. But it was you know, it was shocking. The fact that it was in the first round, um, you just don't associate Serena Williams, you know, with these like types of losses. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just, I don't know, it was lost for words. <laughs> I know. I mean, I think that like, there's a bit of context. She was, I think this was part of her kind of comeback from when she had uh, like the blood clots and, you know, had a very kind of near death experience almost. Um, so, Perhaps in that context, it isn't as shocking as, I, I don't know. I mean, it's still shocking because, I mean, it's the only time Serena's ever lost in the first round of a slam, I think. And to do that, you know, to a player that's outside the top 100. Um, and I guess we've seen, obviously, these mental frailties from Serena a lot, you know, more lately. But at that time, we hadn't necessarily seen it. And uh, just, yeah, she's always, I mean, Serena in a, in a dogfight is, is great to watch, you know, the the sheer kind of power and oh it's just it's one of those sights isn't it but and also Razana I should just say the year before this she had lost her coach and fiance um very sadly to a, a brain tumor so you know to have this epic win a year later um I think almost to the day like obviously that was a really touching moment and added an extra kind of narrative to this match um, but I mean, it didn't, it didn't affect Serena, like in terms of her comeback, because she went on to win Wimbledon that year. She won obviously numerous. And the US Open as well. Yeah. So it didn't, it didn't set her back too much, uh, long-term, shall we say? No. And, and interestingly, I think a lot of, a lot of people call this loss, uh, by Serena as almost kind of like one of the, like a blessing. It was almost a, a blessing in disguise, uh, like one of the best kind of losses of her career, um, in a in again in a weird sort of way because she you know something happened there uh, and she came back and she she then went on to win something like ten more Grand Slams she won Wimbledon she won the U.S. Open I think she won the French Open the following year so you know she definitely did uh, you know she definitely did bounce back and it, it, she didn't re- you know she didn't she didn't um, she didn't she just moved on you know it happened she moved on and she got back to kind of winning you know winning slams um kim i'm just going to test you actually so razano and our listeners as well actually a very tough question here razano then lost in the second round after beating serena williams Ooh. do you know who she lost to Oh, it's probably someone completely random that she should have beaten, or maybe not that <laughs> not that she should have beaten based on her ranking. But oh, I don't know. Was it? I want. Okay, this is the first player that came to my mind. Pauline Parmentier. 
<laughs> that is an amazing that is an amazing is it? guess um, it's it's a player i've never i'm, I'm not gonna lie uh, i've never heard of uh she's still playing tennis though um and is ranked i, I think i was on her wikipedia she's ranked around 60 or did the world or i've never as i said i've never heard of her but it's dutch player I, i'm probably even Arantia saying Ross. this wrong yeah, there you oh, go. Okay. I've heard of her. Have you not heard oh, okay. of her? Yeah. <laughs> Apology. Oh, apologies. I bet our listeners, our listeners are Ooh. like heads in hands. Like Joel, how have you not heard of Arantxa Russ? But uh, yeah, um, Razade went on to lose to to Russ in, in the second round, and Russ went on. Uh, I think she had a career best uh, performance to date at a Grand Slam. She got to the fourth round. Um, uh, she got to the fourth round. I think she beat Gergers as well in the uh, the third round. But um, yeah, just a little a little fact for for our listeners. So before we reveal our top moment, I thought we would have a couple of honourable mentions because it was quite hard to narrow down a list of just eight moments. So I mean, here's one for you, Joel. Francesca Schiavoni. I completely forgot that she won the French Open in like 2010. Completely random. I mean, she was I think ranked in the top 20 at the time, but I just, when I think about slam winners, I just forget that she she won a slam. I don't know about you. Uh, no, I, do you know what? I actually remember this because I remember, I think she was crying afterwards because it meant, you know, so much to her to be the first Italian woman, uh, you know, to win a slam. Mm. And I mean, she's a great, actually, she's a great fighter. She's a great clay court player. And, uh, you know, she, who was she playing in the final? She was playing Stoza. Sam, mm. Sam Stoza, who, you know, he's a you know, very good player on the day. Sam Stoza, though, on a clay court, I, that's that surprise that surprises me. And I, I mean, I also forget that Stoza, you know, then went on to win the U.S. Open the next year. So they they both ended up, you know, with a slam. And and actually, then Schiavone backed up her her win by getting to the final a year later. So very consistent. Um, but she lost then to Lena uh, in twenty eleven. Again, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea in researching this episode. Lena won the won the French Open. Honestly, um, Joel, where have you been? But yeah. Um, but yeah, we have we have had a few definitely a few surprising surprising champions. I think it brings up a lot of maiden slam winners. Um, you know, as we were talking about earlier with with Barty von Trusfer making the final, but I mean, from a personal note, I think one of my highlights would be when Mark and Feliciano Lopez won the doubles in 2016. Um, I've always been a big fan of watching them. So um, that was nice. And another one that I remember was that famous uh, Caroline Garcia, Maria Sharapova match um, where, you know, Andy Murray predicted that Garcia was going to be a future <laughs> world number one. Which you know, I feel like that tweet has happened. gone down in folklore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, it's probably more. This match is more famous for that tweet now. I mean, no, it was it was an exciting match because Garcia was obviously like very young. She was a wild card. People really hadn't seen her play before. Um, she was ranked down at like one hundred and eighty-eight, um, and you know, she took the first set, and then you know, the second set was kind of um, well, she was four-one up in the second set. And obviously Sharapova did a classic comeback and uh, then ran away with with the third set to love. Um, but, you know, what we saw of Garcia, um, I think... I mean, she was know, 17 at the time. Yeah, so, at such a young yeah. age. Um, so to do what she did, like, no wonder Andy Murray, you know, was making statements like that um, about her. I, I can understand why. I think what's really held Garcia back is, you know, her mental frailty. And you can see that even, you know, in this match. And sadly, she hasn't quite managed to uh, to deal with that yet. Um, but, you know, perhaps there's still time. 
And then another moment we have in our honourable mentions, a one from the tournament last year, was the match between Vavrinka and Sissipas, which was a five-set epic. I think it went five hours and nine minutes, fourth longest match in the tournament history. One of those classic, you know, next gen ATP stars in Sissipas versus Vavrinka, who by then, of course, is a two-time uh, two-time French Open champion. Um, no, one time. And, He's only won it oh, once. One time. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you're you're throwing in an extra title. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. He's won three. That's it. Um, so, um, he's won three in total. But, um, you know, I think it was a, that was a, such a great match. I mean, Sissipas coming out 8-6, uh, in, you know, in the fifth set. It's probably up there. I'm trying to think. It's probably up there in terms of one of the best matches we've seen between, you know, the next gen and like someone from the current gen. I, you know, I put Medvedev, Nadal, the US Open final in that category, but, mm. um, you know, it, 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 that was such a that was such a good that was such a good tennis match, wasn't it? Oh, it was brilliant. I think it was. I like um, one of the articles I was reading about it described it as "stop what you're doing tennis," uh, which I thought was summed it up <laughs> nicely because I wasn't uh, watching all of it live. I think I think I was on a boat or something because I remember checking the scores, but. Was it Rafa's boat? <laughs> no, it wasn't Rafa's boat. <laughs> Although that would have been nice, but um, no, it was a little like tiny little boat going across the channel but um yeah I was just kind of like it was just amazing it was you know you just had no idea how it was going to end and um yeah I mean oh I think I think Stan saved uh, a ridiculous number of break points so Sitzpass had so many opportunities he came so close but he just couldn't quite get over the finish line so I'm sure that's really frustrating for him I'm sure he would have you know he really feels his losses doesn't he Sitzpass so I think he was probably quite gutted afterwards but um yeah it was real epic the way i would describe that match now is one that makes me really miss live tennis and mm. single-handed back single-handed backhand contests as well um mm. but uh, i agree but yes <laughs> but yeah listeners have you got any other have you got any other moments uh you could suggest on this list we have got one left for you it is in our number one spot and i'm hoping kim can get through it without uh, bursting into tears or <laughs> <laughs> but of course I, I mean I don't think this is going to be t- I don't think this is going to be a surprise to any of our listeners but we think that the most dramatic moment over the last decade at Roland Garros it has to be going way back to going back to 2009 Rafa's first defeat Robin Soderling tw- he was the 20 23rd seed in the fourth round and he beats Nadal in four sets uh it was a it was a bit of a it, i mean to say it was a shock was is a bit of an understatement i think and you know to this day you know nadal has lost to two players at the french open one of them novak djokovic okay i can see that i can agree with that but the other robin soderling i mean kim what's your view on this is this a match where you know soderling just played lights out tennis and was the better player on the day or do you think nadal was was going through injury was he having an off day does that sort of water it down a little bit i don't know but it still feels like a really it felt at the time a really seismic moment yeah i like how you said you agree with the uh djokovic defeat <laughs> do you not agree with soderling winning um what? Yeah, I, <laughs> no, I totally, I get what you're saying. Um, I mean, I genuinely at the time was like, oh my God, the end of the world has happened, uh, which <laughs> sounds really dramatic, but I was like in floods of tears. Um, 
yeah okay at the time I you know I was just like what is going on but yeah subsequently Rafa then ended up pulling out of Wimbledon where he would have mm. been defending his title um and he you know, he he did have a knee injury, um, so I, I, that was bothering him uh, during this match. And his parents were going through a divorce at the time, or like a separation period. And you know, Rafa's very very close, uh, you know, to his family. That's a major major thing for him. So I think that really threw him off. Um, the the weird thing is, that I don't think you know, going into this match, anyone expected um, this result because Rafa had played Sodling in Rome just you know a month earlier and he'd absolutely annihilated him like love and one so I know it's just like you would never think therefore in the fourth round of the French Open that this would even be much of a contest mm. so I think the, the, the complete shock and surprise of it like was the number one thing that just whoa yeah and I think it's more I, th- I think for me you, I think you're more shocked by the fact that this was Nadal's first defeat than mm, like yeah. Soderling winning because I've, you know, I think to give credit to Soderling, he's a, he was a very good player on his day. Uh, you know, he got, he got to, this wasn't just kind of a flash in the pan. He got to, he got to two French open finals, I believe. Yeah. Um, he got to the final this year. So he, he went all the way and lost to Federer in the, in the final. And I, I was actually quite pleased that he did that because it's really annoying, actually, when you get players who rock up and have the match of their life and then just, you know, lose in the next round. So I was actually really pleased that he managed to to keep it going because obviously he was in very good form and had the confidence after this victory to to go that far. And then a year later in 2010, you know, he played Rafa in the final um, and Rafa beat him. So that was kind of, I felt like a sense of justice had prevailed and Rafa was writing the match from a year before and kind of saying, oh, you know, if I had been fully fit, then your victory last year wouldn't have happened. But I think eventually, though, Rafa was always probably going to lose a match at Roland Garros. And perhaps it was better that it came in the fourth round to someone who wasn't a massive rival than it happening in the final um, to like Djokovic or Federer or something. Um, so perhaps it was you know, all's well that ends well. Mm. And I think it just shows you like every, like, I know this is a classic expression, but like every dog has his day. And, <laughs> you know, I think I was reading going into that match, Soderling was 0 and 17 against the big three, against, you know, Federer, Djokovic and Nadal uh, in terms of matchups. And it just, it, it just kind of, it just shows you that it, if you apply yourself and you believe in yourself, it can be done no matter how you know it's insurmountable it, it looks on paper and I think that's for me what is so amazing about this result is that you you kind of look at it and you you, you know you instantly write it off uh, but actually you know it can happen and it's what it was it's what it's what make tennis so great it's the no matter how sort of certain you think something is no matter how much of a sure bet you think something is it doesn't always turn out that way. And, uh, you know, on May 31st, 2009, um, it was so it was so Ling's day. And it was, uh, you know, it was a great, it, it was a great, you know, it was a great win for him. And, you know, probably the other, the other player probably celebrating just as hard as him was, was Roger Federer mm. because, you know, he was still going, I think at that time, well, he's only won one French Open. He was going at that time to, you know, obviously complete the the set and you always basically you know up to that point you always kind of felt um you know Federer's gonna have to go through Nadal at the French Open which I don't think he's he still hasn't done no you know to win a slam so when he 
almost kind of gets given a you know a, a present wrapped by Robin Soderling in the, in the fourth round of the French Open by you know defeating one of his his main competitors. Uh, you know he must he must have been kind of licking his lips at licking his lips at that. Yeah, I think there will, you know, be some naysayers who will say, oh, well, Federer, yes, he has won the French Open. He didn't have to beat Nadal mm. to get it. Yeah, um, he got given a, you know, a pass in the final, um, which is perhaps being a bit harsh on Sodling, but that that is a, you know, a, an argument to be made. Um, and I can't begin to imagine the heartbreak that Fed fans would have felt if he hadn't have won that final. Now it was finally, you know, their chance for their man, but Gosh, yeah. I mean, this it makes an excellent pub quiz question, doesn't it? Name the two players that have beaten Rafa at uh, the French Open. And I'm pretty sure everyone would be able to get Djokovic, but I'm sure Sodling might might cause a few... Well, it might cause trouble for some non-tennis fans, but uh, maybe I'll put that in the next <laughs> quiz that I design for some mates and see what they say. Yes. Uh, listeners, let us know. Did you did you agree with our list? Did you think there were some moments we missed off that should have been included in there? Or maybe you would have ordered them differently. Uh, let us know on social media at Passing Shot Pod on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can email the show as well. Passing Shot Pod at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, remember, you can always subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts um if you do listen on apple podcasts and you are enjoying the show uh we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick rating and a review as that does really help us yes and uh yeah thanks for listening to this episode of the passing shot we hope you really enjoyed it we hope you're of course still safe wherever you are maybe you're getting back out onto a, a tennis court um i probably should do do so at some point but uh, yeah we'll be back i'm sure at some point uh, in the future probably next week actually we've got a really exciting episode for you so watch out for that but yeah in the meantime stay safe stay positive <laughs> and we'll see you further down the road staying positive Joel I think I'm gonna go and get a gin and tonic now you've mentioned that that sodling match (laughs) it's brought up all the memories I was wondering oh how is this gonna go in the show when I bring this up is Kim gonna is Kim just gonna like she's just gonna leave the leave the the recording yeah Kim has left the left the room um no I mean it's been a long time if I was still so emotional 11 years later I'd, I'd be worried but uh at the time it was oh it was distressing i tell you but anyway i think any excuse for a bit of gin and tonic then i'm there